continue in prayer for our uh, facility. Um, you won't quit coming, so we're thankful for that. But uh, we, we are, somebody asked this morning, we had a Q&A during our Bible Training Institute time. Um, we kind of said that we're in a race between people and money. So uh, we're thankful that, that both are growing. I don't know what you guys are doing, but you are giving to Joyful Generosity. Uh, we suspect somebody won the lottery. So we're, we're thankful for that. Keep doing it. We're, um, we're headed in a good direction. And we just want to be faithful to the Lord. The Lord said he would build his church, and we just want to be faithful until he returns and, and uh, makes all things perfect. Let's pray for just a moment. Let's get our minds to the word of God. Our Father... The song that we have just sung, the cross of Christ in all its glory and yet all of its terror, what Christ endured for us is beyond our imagination. The line that says the dust that formed the crowds, we are all made of dust. We are all made of the dirt of the ground. And we are reminded of your greatness and our insignificance. And the fact that you, from eternity past, would take dust and destine them for glory is beyond what we can fathom. All we can do is thank you. All we can do is give you our gratitude. We are but dust. Psalm 103 reminds us and we're like the flower of the field that withers. And yet you are for eternity and you have chosen us to live in eternity with you. How could we do any less than to serve you with our whole hearts, with humility, lifting you up that you may become more and we may become less. May that be our prayer this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who, what, fears the Lord is to be praised. We live in a world now in which Satan has led unbelievers to destroy gender identity, to desecrate God's design for man and for woman. And how gracious it is of our God to give us his timeless word of truth about how he created man and woman in his image. How gracious it is that he has shown us that he designed us to reflect the attributes of God. How gracious it is that he's taught us that proper reflection of God is simply by acting in the roles that he has given us. That we reflect the image of of God as an act of worship. For anyone to say, I would rather do what my culture says a man is to do, or I would rather do what my culture says a woman is to do, and now I would rather define my own vague gender identity because that's what my culture says to do. Let's translate this. That's a direct statement where you may as well be saying, I do not wish to worship God. Because what you're saying is, I do not want to properly reflect the image of God as one made in his image. 
I do not want to be an accurate reflection. I do not want to be a mirror that reflects God. I want to be a mirror that reflects me. And so our gracious God has not left us to guess. He's given us His perfect design, His perfect way to express our gratitude and love because of His generous gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. How encouraging it is to know how precisely we are to please our God. And so that's our thinking this morning. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2. Last week we introduced this mini-series on the godly women of the church. And today we'll start getting into the particulars. We're looking today at godly adornment. But it's not what you think. The key to this whole passage, really, that we're going to look at this morning is the adornment of the heart, the inner woman of God. I'm going to read the whole passage beginning in verse 9, but we'll just consider verse 9 and the first part of verse 10 today. Beginning in verse 9, we kind of begin in the middle of a sentence here. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, before we get into the meat of verse 9 and the first part of verse 10, we need to be reminded of the context. And then we also, I I just want to make sure we get this. I want to firmly establish that this text is applicable today, that we apply this today. So let's put a little foundational understanding. Just as a, a reminder, the context of this passage is the official formal worship service of the local church. As a matter of fact, it's very unique to be preaching a passage about what's happening right now. At this moment, in the early church, believers often met in homes, but they, when they could, met in larger groups at the local synagogue or even at the temple in Jerusalem. But each of these principles that we're going to see here in 1 Timothy 2 concerning the conduct of a woman, and men are given instructions earlier in the chapter and then later in chapter 3, the underlying principles are clearly lifestyle ways of walking with the Lord. Yes, it is applied specifically to the local church, but there's a lifestyle as well. And this becomes especially apparent in verse 15. What is Paul doing here? Well, he's giving instruction concerning two problems that seems to have cropped up with women in the church. The first one is personal adornment, how they dress. And the second one is women exercising or asserting spiritual authority over men in the church. And so he gives this very direct set of instructions. In fact, these are so direct that for the past Hundred years, scholars have been trying to find any way around taking what Paul says at face value. There are many evangelical commentators who stress their opinion that 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 is not universally applicable. That this portion of scripture cannot be applied today. For example, one of my favorite scholars on 1 Timothy, and I love reading him, Dr. Gordon Fee disappointingly says this quote it is of some interest to note 
that those who think these verses are universally applicable, even though the rest of the New Testament suggests otherwise, do not feel the same urgency about younger widows remarrying in chapter 5, verse 14. Let me read that again because we need to destroy it. We need to talk about it. It is of some interest to note that those who think these verses are universally applicable, even though the rest of the New Testament suggests otherwise, do not feel the same urgency about younger widows remarrying in 514. And I love Dr. Fee. He is a, he's a godly man. He has pr- provided so much for the church, but this comment is disappointing on three fronts. First of all, he doesn't cite or quote a single source that supports this view that we take Chapter 2, seriously, but not chapter 5, which is about how to counsel younger widows. I've personally counseled younger widows from 1 Timothy 5, so that's without basis. The second disappointing thing is that Fee is the author of several tremendously good works on how to interpret the New Testament. And frankly, he should have known better. The, the culture of political correctness and feminism became part of his hermeneutic in this case and all who want to, want to alter the biblical record to fit current trends. And the third reason this is disappointing is just flat out wrong. He says that the New Testament suggests that these verses are not universally applicable. That's easy to poke holes in by simply looking at the rest of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Uh, We're going to look next time at a whole other passage that kind of goes along with this. I added this message into my series here, but the rest of the New Testament fits exactly with the the gist of this one. And so, sadly, Fee was the editor in 2005 of a massively popular book called Discovering Biblical Equality, Complementarity Without Hierarchy. The basic gist of the book is saying that there's not a particular hierarchy of roles in life in general, in the church or even in marriage. That when Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands, or when he said uh, to submit to your elders, that he really meant something else. And so partly in response to Fee's work, John Piper and Wayne Grudem in 2012 edited a similar work called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a Response to Evangelical Feminism. And it's an excellent book. By the way, that book is available online for free. You can download it, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So to say that these verses are not applicable, you can't apply them, this is so disappointing because all you have to do is turn a couple of pages over and find that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There are factors we have to consider, Old Covenant versus New Covenant. There are cultural considerations that have to be taken into account, and we'll do that today and next week. But all Scripture is applicable today. Why do we have it if it's not? But the basic argument of fee and other scholars is not a covenantal argument. It's not even a cultural argument. Very specifically, It is a geographic argument. And we looked at this in some detail last week. The geographic argument says that Paul is addressing an Ephesian issue only. That Ephesus was a unique city among all the cities in the Greco-Roman world. And we saw last week that's not the case. And they would say, well, this epistle is here to address specific issues. I got news for you. All the epistles are here to address specific issues. And they all apply to us. We simply have to wade our way through the cultural differences and build a bridge to what it means today. 
It doesn't change the meaning. It just changes the, uh, the, the way we understand uh, how we live it out. And we'll talk about that some later. 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, many scholars say, well, this is just a specific response to a specific issue in Ephesus, which is very true. But again, all of Paul's epistles are specific responses to specific issues. We don't say, well, that makes this truth inapplicable today. And as we'll point out in more detail in a couple of weeks, Paul appeals to something far beyond just a local situation in Ephesus. In verses 13 and 14, he appeals all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the fall of Adam and Eve, and to sin as proof of one of his commands. That's not about Ephesus. That's about the reality of sin. So, let's be logical here just for a moment. If you cannot apply these verses in the church today, and the context here is within the church, and in particular in the worship gathering, then how is a woman to know how to conduct herself in the church? How are you supposed to know? And if, for example, not only are these verses applicable only 2,000 years ago in the city of Ephesus, what if chapter 3 is only applicable 2,000 years ago in the city of Ephesus. That perhaps chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent or gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. If that doesn't apply today, then what does the church look to to judge their leaders? Now, anytime your view of Scripture leaves you scrambling trying to figure out what to do, you've missed the mark. Instead, we revel in the fact that God has shown us how to conduct ourselves in the church of Jesus Christ, completely devoid of the worthless influence of the wicked world in which we live. In fact, just turn over real quick to chapter 3, verse 15. This is our theme for the whole year. In verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. If he's writing so that we may know how to behave, and these verses don't apply, then what is this doing here? Anytime Scripture leaves you scrambling to know what to do, you've missed the mark. Now, if you'll indulge me just one more thought before we dive into the text, let me tell you what verse 9 is not about just so that we're clear. Verse 9, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. What is this not about? First of all, this is not a command that looking terrible pleases God. It just isn't. This is legalism of the most base sort that says if you obey this set of rules, then God will be happy with you. That the woman who looks as drab as possible is more pleasing to the Lord than the one who doesn't. That's ridiculous. And I grew up around a system that actually believed that. And it was so sad. These precious teenage girls were just precious and full of life and and their hair is beautiful and they wear it down and it looks nice. And the minute they get married, it's like, Okay, now I'm grandma, like at the age of 20, because that was considered righteous and holy. I've said this before, I I love my grandmother who is now in heaven, but she looked the same when she was 21 as when she was 80, because it was considered holy. So it's not a command that looking terrible pleases God. Secondly, 
And conversely, this is not a command that looking your best or taking your time on your appearance is somehow wicked. That that's wrong. This is, again, a part of a legalistic idea that anything with the appearance of the external is automatically bad. That's not true. That's a false form of of self-righteousness. God loves... You know how I know? He invented it. He didn't make the world in tones of gray and say color doesn't matter. It's what's on the inside that counts. He made the world with color. Third thing, this is not. This is not a command that dressing up a little to gather to worship God is always wrong. Here's the tired old argument. It's, well, Jesus didn't dress up to worship. Yes, because he only owned one set of clothes. That was it. Some of you and me, we do dress up to worship. It's not a rule. It's not a measure of righteousness. In some cultures or in third world countries, it's not possible. It's not possible. But those who do, why do you do it? It's for the same reason that a man wears a tie to a job interview. It's the same reason a wife looks extra nice to go out with her husband. It's the same reason you don't wear your workout clothes to go to the White House. What's the reason? You're meeting with someone important. That's the reason. It reflects an attitude of the heart. And by the way, it can impact the attitude of your heart. In ancient Israel, they didn't have dozens of changes of clothes like we do in an industrialized society. But they were required to wear clean clothes and to have cleaned their bodies to be as highly presentable as possible before their God. So just to be clear, this is not about keeping a set of rules. It's about being a woman of God with a maturity, a spiritual grounding, which accurately reflects the image of God in you, and it demonstrates the work of the Spirit of God in your heart and in your mind. Paul addresses their dress and demeanor. He puts together both the external and the internal, that the external imitates the internal attitude of the heart. In the very same breath, he gives guidelines about external adornment and the internal qualities of modesty and self-control. So, just to make this as simple as possible, I'd like to show you four godly adornments of a Christian woman. Four godly adornments of a Christian woman. The first one we'll call, these are just one word each, we'll call propriety. Propriety. I know that's not a word that we use a lot. I'm hoping to bring it back. Propriety speaks of important concepts like politeness, good manners, appropriateness, respectability. Chapter 3, verse 11, speaks of women in the church. Their wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. That has to do with propriety. Now, just to be certain that we understand that, yes, the commands given by Paul do mention and they do include external apparel, but they're more reflective of the heart attitude, the maturity of, of Christian women, we can make a very simple observation. Paul is merely telling the women the same thing he just told the men. Let me show you. The attire of the women is to reflect that they're thinking carefully about everything they do in light of their position in Christ. There's nothing which doesn't come under the lordship of Christ, including outward appearance, which is just a reflection of the inward reality. Paul is telling the women the same thing he told the men. What did he just tell the men? Verse 8. 
I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The men are to pray, and there are two factors in prayer. For, well, before we get to those, he speaks of the hands. He's not speaking literally of the hands necessarily. It represents the whole person. This is a figure of speech called a synecdoche. It means that a part is representing the whole Or it can be the other way around. But there's two aspects to these holy hands. First of all, they're lifted hands. And and this is not what the modern church has made it. That when the band starts playing, all the hands shoot up in the air in some mindless group hypnosis. That's not what this is talking about. Lifted hands in Scripture connotes an attitude of brokenness, of humility, of empty hands in desperate need of filling. It's a metaphor for an internal attitude. The second, they're holy hands, hands that have not been hypocritical and doing things that unbelievers do. As the rest of the verse says, hands that have not been angry or quarrelsome or pugnacious. The, the one who is, is constantly re- responding that way. No, they're to be lifted hands, an attitude of brokenness and holy hands, a confessed attitude of humility. In other words, the men are to be mindful of their inner attitude, their behavior and their deportment. Verse 9, likewise also. This isn't a different standard. It's the same standard. It's the same. And Paul begins that he desires that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. I don't get to do this very often, but let's talk about clothes. In the Greco-Roman world, not unlike today, the men pretty much dressed all the same. Men's styles never changed. They really haven't ever. I mean, styles for men change about once a century. That's about it. The men dressed all the same, but there was more variety for the women. But even then, the clothing in Paul's world was very simple with only a few basic types of clothing. You had the tunica, a tunic. The the tunica was a, a basic piece of clothing for men or women. And for the women, the tunica was expected to go all the way to the feet like a long dress. Over the tunica could be a stola. We would say a stole. It's a colorful cloth that would be pinned at the shoulders, maybe wrapped around the waist or the hips. It's it's, uh, decorative. But the stola, everybody knew, had some meaning to it. It meant that I'm being respectable. In fact, known adulterers and prostitutes were forbidden to wear a stola. Over the stola could be what's called a pala. It's like a cloak, sort of, pulled over the head like the tunica and used for warmth when going outside. And so even with those simple varieties, there were ways to do it right or do it wrong. But let's get to the internal attitude. What does it mean that they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel? Respectable is a word that means well-ordered, what is normal, what is moderate, what is suitable for the, the occasion. It can even mean discreet. What does this mean externally? It means that you're wearing clothing that evokes respect, not lust, not envy. And respectable apparel. This is very interesting because apparel can be translated deportment, meaning not only clothing that's suitable, but suitable behavior, that the outward person is simply reflecting the inner attitude. The serious woman of God demonstrates respectable appearance. Why? Because it reflects that you are filtering everything you do through your love for Christ. 
And this inner attitude is one of propriety, that is thinking, speaking, speaking, acting in a way that's correct, it's suitable, it's appropriate, it's thought out. To be respectable means you measure, you guard, you're careful, you're sober-minded, you're not impulsive. To be respectable, to have propriety means to act in a manner that the mothers of the little girls in our church may point to you as an example and say, be like that. It's for a mother to act in a way that her daughter may emulate. It's for a wife to act in a way which makes her husband look like a genius for marrying her. So the first godly adornment of a Christian woman, propriety. The second one may surprise you a little. We'll call this one empathy. Empathy. Now we get even more obviously to the guidance given by the heart attitude. The respectable apparel is to be an adornment driven by modesty and self-control. Now, modesty is a relational word. It doesn't have to do with the clothing itself, but how the particular item of clothing, listen carefully, impacts others. It is a relationship word. It speaks of reverence, of respect. In fact, there's an important nuance to this word for modesty. It can mean to have a regard for others. What about self-control? It means to be rational, to have a purpose, discretion. It can even mean to dress with sanity. Like, don't be insane in how you present yourself. Use your head, use common sense, be thoughtful, be purposeful. It means you're being moderate. You're not trying to allure others, neither are you trying to repel them. You're, you're modest, you're self-controlled. Now, why is this important? Paul is addressing the potential for a woman to wear clothing that is sexually seductive. For other women, this can cause great anger and frustration to see a woman coming to church in something clearly meant to stop men in their tracks. That's a frustration to to the other women in the church. And for men, God made men to be visually stimulated. This isn't a weakness. It's not a fault. It's a physiological and emotional wiring that God gave men. And for men, it's a terrible thing to genuinely desire to come and worship Christ in the church and yet have to deal with provocative dress. Clothing can be used to send a very clear message of look at me, but the worship gathering is not the setting to advertise yourself. And yes, God gave men the capacity to be visually stimulated, but that's a gift given for the context of marriage. Song of Solomon Chapter 4 primarily is all about a husband seeing his wife in the context of a loving one flesh marriage. And and again, this isn't an admonition to look externally as terrible as possible. We're not going to go to the extremes of saying, if I look terrible, then I, I won't violate this whatsoever. That can be a disruption as well. That can be a way to say, look at me. Do you know what low self-esteem in the eyes of the world actually is? People who say, well, I have low self-esteem. All it is is a fancy way of saying, I'm so proud, I want everybody to look at me. It is pride in disguise. But the heart attitude of a godly woman says, am I thinking of others? Am I empathizing with how others may be impacted? Listen, the great enemy of the worship service and the gathering of the saints is distraction. We have to work hard to minimize distraction. This is why we have a nursery, right? It's not that we don't love the babies, but the preached word is more important. This is why we don't have windows in the sanctuary. 
Because some of you are a little bit ADHD and the car drives by and you're all, you go right there with it. I just lost you. This is why we take time to move from singing and into prayer and into scripture, into more prayer, so that we can focus intently on the word of God. Do you know that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher in London in the 30s through the 60s, he believed that the worship service was designed to be the introduction to his sermon. To get your minds all there. Distraction is the enemy of the worship service. And there's certainly a difference between looking attractive and distractive. There's a difference. But there are many more applications that could be extrapolated from this. And this is for women and men. This is for all of us. How can you be an encouragement to the worship of the body of Christ and not a discouragement? Can I tell you one way? Did you know that just your mere presence here is an encouragement? The faithful attendance that you demonstrate bolsters the faith of others. How can you be an example of intent worship? Is your heart prepared? Are you rested enough? Are you clearly focused on what's happening? Have you engaged your mind? This is why we don't encourage bringing your latte or hot beverage of choice into worship. Because we're not watching the movie. We're worshiping God. How can you be part of creating a culture of the awe of worship do you pray when we're praying do you sing when we're singing do you listen intently when we're preaching speaking of empathy how can you be part of making certain that as a church we're loving and kind to each other and to all those who are newer to the body do you make it your goal on the lord's day to include a little fellowship and not just for your sake but to connect to others for their sake in our family we will often quiz one another. Who did you speak to today? Who did you encourage today? I guarantee you that on any given Sunday, some of you come, yes, to hear the word of God and to sing and to pray, but sometimes you come because you desperately need a hug. You need to hold someone's hand. You need to have a positive, meaningful conversation. So provide that for one another. Have that glorious Empathy, what a godly adornment. Empathy for others in the body of Christ. Years ago, when I was pastoring in Texas, the place where our church was meeting for a while was right across the street from a church of Christ. And we got there at the same time. And it just boggled my mind to see the women coming in to the church of Christ, which is supposedly really, really conservative. And they they looked like they were auditioning for some horrible reality show. It was just a contest of who could be the most provocative. It was awful. And so we are empathetic. Here's a third godly adornment of a Christian woman. We'll call this one security. Security. Paul goes on to say, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Not with braided gold and Hair, braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Ladies, by the way, God cares about your hair. I can prove this. 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen says that the hair of a woman is her glory. Twice in Song of Solomon, husbands take notes. The husband extols the beauty of his wife's hair. Now, we just read, not with braided hair. And some of you are trying to get the braids out right now. Like, maybe he won't see if I lean this way. Like, really? On the day that I have a French braid and two on the side? Well, let's see what he's talking about. 
Most women in the Greco-Roman world wore fairly simple hairstyles. They let it fall naturally using a headband, maybe fastened it with a pin. They didn't have electric appliances to use, so they just were pretty simple. But during the reign of Emperor Augustus, who was reigning right about the time of the birth of Christ, a variety of elaborate hairstyles swept through the Roman Empire. And it's interesting to me that without media of any kind, these styles still went like wildfire. And it became a contest to see who could wear the most jewels, the most luxurious clothing materials, since the basic clothing was the the same, you just had better material. Who could wear the most makeup? Who could wear the most intricate hairstyle that could be imagined? So when Paul refers to braided hair, he's referring to a very specific idea. It's not just talking about wearing a ponytail or something like that. It's talking about an extremely elaborate hairstyle that involved twists, waves, curls, wigs, hair pieces, extremely elaborate designs with beads, jewels, ribbons woven into the braided hair, hair nets of finely woven golden wire, garlands of flowers, a tiara, headdresses and pearls all at once. Look like the world's biggest Q-tip with jewels. But that hairstyle said two things. First of all, it said, look how alluring I am. And it also said, look how wealthy I am. Because you know what else it took to have that hairstyle? It took having your own well-trained slave called an ornatress. You had your own hairstylist. And by doing this, you wanted everybody to look and see how wealthy you are and see how alluring you are. So Paul isn't just legally, legalistically saying, no braids, no gold, look horrible. No, he's pro- prohibiting extravagant and ostentatious adornment, using the gathering of the church to get attention. That's the worst thing you can do in the gathering of the church. Why would a woman fall into the spiritual trap of shallowness and superficiality? Well, it comes down to a desperate need for attention an addiction to having others pay attention to me. This is certainly the opposite of the mature Christian attitude Paul described in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, this constant need for recognition, for others to look can be a signal that maybe a woman has not found her identity in Christ. Or maybe hasn't even come to genuine faith in Christ. One scholar said it this way, overdone efforts at outward adornment are often overcompensation for inward emptiness. Instead, here is the true security of the woman of God. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is only in Christ you can receive your security. You could have a million people looking at you. You see social media with these so-called influencers with one, two, three, and four million followers. And it's not enough. It's not enough because inside they're empty but you're filled with the Spirit of Christ. The godly adornments of a Christian woman, propriety, empathy, security. One more, and I want to spend the most time on this one. The obvious one, 
beauty. Beauty. Verse 10 makes it clear that Paul is aiming for the heart, for the attitude of the Christian woman. These instructions for the external are reflective of what is proper for a woman who professes godliness. Women who profess godliness. Now, godliness, this is a word that literally means a worshiper of God, somebody who follows Christ, somebody who's converted, somebody who is regenerate. But this is very interesting. To profess godliness is much, much more than just saying, I'm a Christian. This is not merely a profession of faith. This is a much stronger word. It means to be someone who has made a promise. It can even mean someone who claims to be an expert in something. Now, this isn't a boastful claim. This isn't an arrogant claim at all. It's just a fact that the woman who has walked with the Lord for many years could speak of her life with Christ in tremendous detail. Lessons learned, blessings received. So many of you precious ladies I know have been in Christ for 20, 30, and 40 years. I could just say, tell me about your walk with Christ and you could proclaim your expert status as a Christian. It's a good thing that her life is a rich treasure house of the knowledge of Christ. And so for a woman who professes, meaning she's claimed to have promised herself to Christ and be a mature follower of Christ, to dress provocatively or unwisely is totally incongruent with who she says she is. Instead, there's to be a congruence, a correspondence of the outer behavior and the inner woman Now, we get a really helpful and practical application in the parallel passage of the true beauty of the godly woman from the Apostle Peter. So turn with me to 1 Peter 3. It's a very familiar short passage on what it means to be a godly wife and a godly husband. And Peter really gives us a nice little list of what a truly beautiful spirit of a godly woman looks like. 1 Peter 3. We'll kind of jump around just a little bit here. 1 Peter 3, verse 3. See if this sounds familiar. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now, the obvious implication here is that Peter is saying, do not let your adorning be merely external. So what does this adorning consist of? Well, there's three features of the adorning that Peter gives here. The first one we'll call wise Nonverbal communication. Wise, nonverbal communication. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, there's an interpretive question here as to whether winning the husband means seeing an unsaved husband get saved or seeing a a saved, unrighteous husband start behaving better. It doesn't make any difference. From the woman's standpoint, her behavior is the same. That he may be one without a word. What is this speaking of? Well, it's very simple. Take talking and subtract it. Everything else is what he's speaking of. And I know this is a sore spot because, ladies, talking is the solution to almost everything. And we understand that, and often that's true. 
But consider all the other ways that we have of communicating besides the content of your words. And it makes all the difference in being a woman of inner beauty, tone of voice, pleasant, pleasant facial expressions, knowing your husband to understand him, knowing your friends to understand them, serving your husband faithfully, a gentle touch, bright smiles, honoring his wishes joyfully, demonstrating patience, listening carefully. All of these have to do with everything except words. Now, the context here is marriage, but it applies across the board to all relationships in the body of Christ to win people without words necessarily. The second feature of this adorning we'll call heavenly motivated conduct. Heavenly motivated conduct. Verse 2, continuing the sentence, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The respectful and pure conduct speaks in part of motivation. A godly wife truly in her heart respects her husband and is pure toward him, meaning that she is genuinely acting with him the way Christ would have her to because she's motivated by love for God, not by some misplaced mission to overhaul her husband. You know how many times a wife has successfully overhauled her husband in history? Zero. All the women are holding up the zero right now. You know because that's not what you're called to. You're called to please Christ. What's the motive? It's to be a holy woman who hopes in God. Her hope is in God, not in an idol of a new and improved version of her husband. She respects his wishes. She doesn't degrade him, doesn't disrespect him. She's pure toward him in every way. And of course, this also is universally applicable. Heavenly motivated conduct is truly attractive in the most spiritual sense of that idea. Why is that? Well, it engenders the smile of heaven Because the woman of God is yearning to please her Savior by means of her respectful treatment of all those around her. Her purity of heart toward all those not cherishing sinful, hateful thoughts toward anyone, not cherishing bitterness, not cherishing those thoughts that drive us down the dark road. There's a third feature of this adorning. We'll call this one an observable calm. An observable calm. Verse 4 exerts, exhorts the godly woman toward a gentle and quiet spirit. What does this mean? Well, gentle just means to be meek, to be humble, to not be the hero of your own story all the time. And quiet, this is not the idea of silent. It's not what it's speaking of. It's the idea of well-ordered. It means something that's at rest, something that is in repose. And this is the woman who, yes, is made to be emotional, but it isn't controlled by emotion, nor is she out of control. There's a peacefulness to her. In context with her husband, she's peaceful, she's meek, she's well-ordered. She's the opposite of what Proverbs four times calls a quarrelsome wife. It's one who's continually critical and overuses her words. Instead, the woman of peace is learning the peace of the Lord, which is independent of her circumstances. There's a quiet calm and a confidence in the Lord she possesses even in the face of suffering or difficulty. And I got to tell you, it has nothing to do with your husband. It has nothing to do with people around you because I have seen over the years of ministry, I have seen women with really pretty decent husbands who are never satisfied. And I've seen women with horrible husbands who are just walking with Christ and completely content. The other people around you is not the variable. It's how is your vertical walk with the Lord. 
So when you're working toward and striving for wise, nonverbal communication, heavenly motivated conduct, and observable calm, what does Peter call this? In verse 4, he calls it imperishable beauty. It is imperishable. And by the way, as women of God motivated to please your Savior, did you notice the, the smile of God in verse 4 that the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is what? In God's sight is very precious. Meaning this is what God values. This is what God honors. This is what God will bless. I want to give you just one more example of how God values the internal beauty of a woman. Turn with me over to Proverbs 31. We won't take a lot of time on this, but this is the classic poem which outlines the character of a godly wife. But of course, this has broad applications to women of God in general. I don't want to dive into a lot of detail. I don't have time for that. But I just want to show you how much of Proverbs 31, this character study relies on the internal loveliness of a godly woman. We'll just hit this in bullet point form. Proverbs 31, verses 10 and 11. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. What is this? She's trustworthy. She can be counted upon to obey the Lord. Verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. Willing hands. There's that synecdoche again, that figure of speech where the part represents the whole Willing hands is a figure of speech to represent the fact that she has a good attitude. She is willing. All that she does is with this pleasure in her work. Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She has a compassionate heart for those who are in dire circumstances. She's generous. Again, an attitude of the heart. Verse 25, Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. This is an attitude of trusting the Lord for the future. Remember, we read earlier in Matthew 6 that Jesus said, Do not be anxious for tomorrow. This is a woman who laughs at tomorrow. She says, Bring it on. God will help me no matter what. Verse 26, She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Her heart of wisdom and kindness is exposed, how? By what she says, by how she uses her speech. And where we began this morning, verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She isn't a shallow charmer who tries to look good to everyone. She knows external beauty is fleeting, but her praise comes from those around her because she clearly fears the Lord. She's trustworthy. She has a great attitude in her work. She's generous. She trusts the Lord for the future. She has a heart of wisdom and kindness that's revealed in her speech. And she fears the Lord. What is this? This is what Peter said. Imperishable beauty. Imperishable. And this is so important. So important. Remember that Peter labels these qualities of First Peter 3, imperishable beauty, you don't have to turn there, but let me just show you something. Peter uses this word imperishable only two other times in First Peter. And every time it speaks to that which is eternal, that which is everlasting. Now follow my logic. Keep your minds engaged. First Peter 1.4, you don't have to turn, just listen. 
We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Chapter 1, verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so in Peter, three things are imperishable. The Christian's inheritance in heaven, the word of God, and a Christian woman's gentle and quiet spirit. That's pretty good company. Do you know what that means? What that means is that these qualities stay with you on into eternity. If you will apply these to your life, do you know what you're doing? You are looking in the mirror and getting a peek at your glorified self. Paul's admonition in our main text in 1 Timothy 2, yes, it contains guidelines for external outer apparel, but how much deeper and richer is this when we see that Paul is yearning that the women who profess godliness, who claim to be experts in walking with Christ, that they demonstrate propriety, appropriateness, empathy, a care and love for others, security, deflecting attention from self and focusing on others instead, and beauty, the imperishable, eternal qualities which will follow you into eternity. You see, what Paul is giving you in 1 Timothy 3 is a preview. It's a preview of your completed sanctification which we see in 1 John 3, 2, that we shall be like him when he appears. And then your adornment will be truly glorious. Then you'll be adorned fully in the righteousness of Christ. You all know the story of Cinderella. The classic tale of an oppressed young woman with no hope who's rescued by marrying a prince, but uh, Walt Disney didn't invent Cinderella. The first version of a Cinderella-like story goes all the way back to the 6th century B.C. In ancient Greece, and the story goes that a lower-class Greek woman named Rhodopis has one of her shoes stolen by an eagle. And this eagle takes off with her shoe. And back then, you didn't have a closet full. It's like, hey, that's my shoe. The eagle flies across the Mediterranean Sea and drops this shoe into the lap of the pharaoh of Egypt. And the pharaoh goes on an adventure to find the owner of the shoe, sort of like the glass slipper of Cinderella. And he finds Rhodopis, and he marries her and makes her his queen. Can I tell you something? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a part of the bride of Christ. You have been rescued from the degradation of your sin. You've been forgiven by means of the payment made at the cross by Christ. You will be united with your heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus himself. And here's the fabulous irony for you ladies. In this life, you obediently avoid the selfishness and the self-aggrandizement that's represented by the braided hair with gold and pearls. And yet in the heavenly kingdom, you'll receive the crown of life pictured in Revelation 4 as golden crowns upon your head. Though you are humble and gentle and quiet of spirit in this life and the life to come, you will be crowned a princess in the very kingdom of Christ. That is worth waiting for, is it not? Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is so clear. And we pray not only for these precious, delightful women of this local body, we pray for our men as well, Lord, that we would seek Christ-likeness, that we would seek to be the same inside and out, that we would seek 
to be those who do not have a divided heart, but those who are simply seeking to honor you, looking to emulate their Savior. We praise you and thank you for the women of our church, Lord. They bring the color and the delight and the joy, the laughter, the hard work. They bring so much. We're thankful for them, Lord. And I pray that for their sake and for your glory, that they would accurately reflect the image of God, the image of Christ in them. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.